Today's episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide. Want to make your next trip unforgettable? There's an easy way to do that. Book a Get Your Guide travel experience. Whether you're into food, nature, culture, sports, immerse yourself in the things that you love on your next vacation. For example, you could check out the Sherlock Holmes tour in London. You could take a pasta making class in Rome, experience the San Diego whale and dolphin watching cruise, or go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. They've got a night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, a New York City street art and graffiti tour. They've even got a Chicago river cruise and architecture tour. Uh, I have to stress that my family went on one of these uh, architecture boat tours of Chicago, and it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you want to turn to get your guide for. Whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. This episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and I, and I suppose the next one as well, will be dealing with gray whales. Uh, this is a topic that I was inspired to cover uh, because my family was fortunate enough to get to go on a trip to Mexico, to the Mexican state of Baja, California, Sur, uh, to one of the uh, breeding lagoons that the gray whales migrate to every year. Uh, specifically, we went to um, Ojo de Liebre Lagoon. That means Eye of the Hair, um, due to the way it's it's shaped. And um, yeah, I got to to see these magnificent animals close up. Uh, got to observe them for a couple of days. It was it was absolutely fantastic, and certainly uh, ignited my curiosity about these creatures. I didn't get to see your your photos because I'm not on the gram, but Rachel was uh, raving about them to me. Yeah, I'll once this episode comes out, I'll have to share some uh, maybe in the, in the discussion module, the Facebook group, uh, or our, our Discord for the show. And if you don't have access to those, uh, just email us and and we'll uh, we'll hook you up. But yeah, the, lot, I, I got some great footage. My wife got some great footage, and and more than anything, we just got to to take in this amazing location, this amazing landscape. Um, and, and these amazing animals. So this lagoon is one of their calving grounds, and, and you were out in boats getting to observe them right up close. Right, yeah. This, um, this is one of several different lagoons where, um, uh, where, the, where this particular population goes to. When we were visiting there, there were hundreds of whales present in this lagoon. It's a pretty vast lagoon. Um, 
it's uh, surrounded on all sides with this kind of desolate and haunting landscape that's full of like salt, sand, and bramble. I mean, it's there. There are organisms there. There are coyotes around and, and, and other creatures, but it's um, it's it's a unique landscape. Like just flying into Guerrero Negro, uh, the, the nearest town, was was really breathtaking. Just because the uh, the landscape is so beautiful. But the, the the first morning we went out on these boats, there were also these intense Fata Morgana mirages on the horizon mm-hmm. that really added to the surreal feel of the place. Uh, what were they like images out? Do they look like mountains or? They were the yeah, surrounding um, mountains, like some of the, the, the peaks that were visible on the and also some of the dunes. So like mm-hmm. dunes and peaks. Uh, uh, so, yeah, it was and they looked like floating islands on the horizon. Wow. And then, of course, closer in, you have all of these breaching whales and um, spy hopping whales. And it's it's amazing. Now, I, I do want to stress uh, that in, in this particular situation, uh, only a few boats were permitted on the water at a time. There was no chasing of the whales. There was no feeding of the whales. Um, they don't eat while they are there. And we'll get into the, the reasons for this as we uh, move uh, through these episodes. Uh, but but there's no need to chase and there's no need to, to try and bait them in because they're very curious. They, they come up to the boats, they inspect the boats, and sometimes they're obviously scraping their skin against the holes of the boats to uh, perhaps to, to relieve um, themselves of some of the uh, parasites that they have, the exoparasites, and, and we'll discuss that as well in the um, Probably in, well, in this episode, actually. Uh, Other times, though, they're not scraping against the boat. Sometimes they're just kind of pushing them around a little bit, uh, like playing with them, I guess, to try and figure out what their mind might be. Other times they're they're just kind of uh, breaching a little bit. They're spy hopping. Um, they, and, and, uh, and they seem to have some sort of interest in what's going on in the boats or with the boats. Humans will reach out and touch them. And it seems like the whales like this on some level. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a very, very, very strange, uh, situation. Like it feels kind of like, certainly there's a sense of curiosity on both sides, but there's also this, you know, if you want to get spiritual about it, there's almost this feeling of communion. So sometimes they'll kind of, uh, bring part of their body out of the water or breach, but also you said spy hopping. Is that when they, they raise their eyes above the water level to see what's above the surface? Well, in other species, such as the orca, um, there's, there's definitely more of an eye coming above the water. Uh, with, the, with the gray whales, they're not even necessarily getting their eyes above water. Mm. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, there, there's some differing takes on, on why exactly they're doing this. But they'll, yeah, they'll kind of spy hop next to the boat, and they're spy hopping out further away from the boats as well. And, um, and then, yeah, sometimes they're rolling around in the water, and kind of, and you'll even like look into their eye. Uh, that sometimes they are looking up through the water at you, and that's one of those moments where you're just, you know, you're you're thinking about like what are they seeing? What are they possibly thinking as they look up at us? What do they think we are? And then you also look at this whale, and you just, you, man, I was just thinking like they've they've seen things I can't even imagine, you know. And this mm-hmm. this particular whale is going to see things just in the months ahead that uh, that I, I can scarcely imagine. So I'm very envious of this experience, and uh, and I would love to see uh, gray whales up close one day too. But I I have seen plenty of video footage, and it, it, at least from what I've seen, uh, several things stand out. One that they kind of I don't know if this makes any sense, but they look more like rocks than any <laughs> other type of whale I I can think of having seen. 
Um, and that may be aided by the uh, the many barnacles attached to the outside of them, which, as we'll talk about uh, later on, are very characteristic uh, of the species of whale, having a lot of barnacle loading on the outside. But in looking at them, they can look very much like a large gray boulder covered in lichen almost, where the, uh, the barnacles are kind of like the lichen patches, or at least it seemed that way to me. Um, and then the other thing being that their nostrils look uh, very... Uh, more typically mammalian rather than the blowhole that you would see on the back of a lot of whales where you might uh, perceive at least as a single blowhole. Uh, the gray whale nostrils I recall seeing are, are very distinctly separate nostrils that kind of flare more like a dog's nostrils might. Oh, yeah, yeah. This this is not your, your cartoon whale. Uh, yeah, you have those, those very nostril-like uh, blowholes on top of the head and you, you if you're if you're out on one of these lagoons, you see see them a lot. In fact, a lot of people end up getting spray. You're constantly misted by the spray from them, even if they're not super close to the boats, uh, just because you know they're they're just coming up. They're they're blowing that blowhole. There's this mist in the air of uh, water, and also I guess probably some uh, some whale snot in there as well. <laughs> But they do have, like, to your point, they do have this kind of rocky appearance. Part of it's the barnacle load, but also their 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 skin is very mottled and um, and scarred, and and it it could look like it is it is stone. Um, when you if you do touch it, I thought that it felt more or less like a big eggplant. That's the kind of feeling I got from it. Like there's a little, like there's a softness to it, but it is also you know it's like a the, that's kind of wetsuit feeling as well. Oh, another thing about their skin is I, and we'll come back to this, but I was surprised by their whiskers. Uh, we've talked on the show before about um, the evolution of whales and uh, the loss of body hair. So I wasn't prepared for the whiskers. Somehow I missed this in uh, leading up to this whale experience. Uh, but they have quite a few whiskers. Um, the other thing that I was surprised about, because on some level I was prepared for this gentleness. I was prepared for this curiosity. I knew what I was getting into with that. Uh, but but also you would you would see them moving underneath the water, and these are big animals. Uh, they're we're talking fourteen point nine meters or forty nine feet in length, uh, weights of up to forty one tons or so. Uh, so these are like school bus sized uh, organisms, and they're they're often very curious and gentle next to the boat but they can they can move with such speed and strength and you see that occasionally especially when they're engaging in mating behavior further away from the boats they'll they'll surge underneath the water and you're reminded just how how powerful and how potentially um destructive these creatures are if they had if they had uh, reason to be destructive towards you you know, it's funny. This reminds me of uh, all, all these passages in Moby Dick describing uh, whales. We know now from plenty of uh, examples like this, just like as a matter of habit, do not seem to uh, attack humans or do anything very aggressive, at least not most of the time. Uh, but but described in these older documents with absolute horror, just like these whales are monsters. They are killers. They will crush you. They will swallow you whole. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I ran across this wonderful description. This is this is uh, from um, a paper in The American Naturalist from 1888 by J.D. Catton titled uh, The California Gray Whale. Uh, the author writes, quote, of all the known species of whales, this is the most cunning, courageous and vicious. So terrible is it that with the old implements of harpoon and lance, but few whalemen would court an encounter with it. 
and it early received the name of the devilfish. I have no account that it ever maliciously attacked an unoffending object, yet when it found itself pursued, where escape was difficult, even before it was struck, it has been known to turn upon pursuers and dash a boat to fragments with a single blow of its powerful flukes, and so has many a life been lost. Okay, well, at least this source acknowledges that this kind of behavior would be like in response to extreme distress, like when the right. whale is being attacked. Yeah, yeah, he is acknowledging that like this this is um, aggression that's coming out of obvious whaling scenarios. Yeah, um, and you know, you, you, you know, the, the sad fact is, and I've touched on this in the show before, you can't uh, you can't remove whaling from our understanding of of these creatures. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the history is is intertwined there with our our understanding um, of the organism. And so we have various things where the name comes from whaler observations, like, for instance, uh, whale lice, which we'll discuss. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're not actually lice, but whalers compare them to lice, and that's where the name comes from. I do believe uh, gray whales specifically uh, are thought to have once been much more abundant, right? But that whaling in particular uh, reduced their populations to present levels where there's a sustainable uh, number of gray whales in the population on the the western coast of uh, the American continent. Uh, but the population that lives on the the other side of the Pacific, on the the eastern coast of the Asian mainland, is uh, much more reduced. But in both cases, reduced by whaling. Yeah, and then there was once a North Atlantic gray whale population. These were thought to have fed around uh, uh, Newfoundland, uh, the Gulf of Saint Lawrence, Iceland, and uh, Europe's northern uh, North Sea. And for their uh, winter breeding uh, lagoons or refuges, uh, it's thought that they might have visited the coasts of Georgia and uh, the Carolinas here in the States, as well as uncertain spots along the coast of Spain, Portugal, and Morocco. Uh, But this population was essentially extinct by the late 17th um, and early 18th centuries, due at least in part to whaling. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, um, there have been proposals to try and introduce uh, reintroduce the North Pacific gray whale into this region to restore the population. And uh, I've also seen speculations about what might occur in the future due to um, climate change, uh, mm. that as we have less uh, sea ice, it might enable the, the gray whales on their own to recolonize this uh, part of the ocean. Mm. I guess it would be very difficult and expensive to try to force a recolonization by human intervention. Yeah, because, I mean, nothing else. We're talking about enormous creatures, and how are you going to get them there? Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't look super hard at the proposals. They may have a very uh, straightforward solution to this. I'm not sure if they would be airlifting them or shipping them across land or exactly what the uh, scenario is, but it has, not, it has not become an actionable thing, at least yet. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the physical characteristics of the, the gray whale here, because I guess we, we are... Uh, an audio program. Uh, you can certainly look up lots of great images and footage and illustrations. Uh, one of the books that uh, was one of my uh, my prime sources here is a book by Mark uh, Carwadine, uh, The Handbook of Whales, Dolphins, and Porpoises of the World. Uh, highly recommend this book for anyone out there who's into um, whales, dolphins, and porpoises. Uh, fabulous illustrations and some great photographs and just lots of wonderful information uh, that, you know, can aid you just sort of in general general interest in these organisms or if you're into citing them and has, you know, how to how to pick out uh, these various uh, uh, creatures by their markings, by their, uh, their spouts, uh, by their flukes, that sort of thing. 
So that's going to be one of the books I'm going to keep referring back to for sure. But getting back to what we were talking about earlier, yes, these are these are whales. These are large creatures, large whales. By some rankings, I think they're only the eighth largest whale species. But considering that number one, the blue whale is the largest animal that's ever lived, there's not really no shame in coming at a number eight. A gray whale can reach 49 feet in length. That's 14.9 meters, weigh about 40 tons. The females are larger than the males. And even the newborns are approximately 14 to 16 feet long. That's roughly 4.2 to 4.8 meters and weigh around 2,000 pounds or around 907 kilograms. So we're talking about big creatures here. Cannot stress that enough. And I guess it's helpful that the newborn calves are are already big because it's when a whale is young that it's most susceptible to predators like the the uh, pr- predation on adult gray whales from what I understand is is pretty rare whereas uh, attempts uh, by animals such as orcas to prey on the calves is pretty common. Yeah, yeah, cuz the a healthy adult whale uh, is is a healthy adult gray whale is a, a formidable opponent. Um, unless conditions are just right. And then, of course, uh, the, uh, the young are going to be the primary uh, focal point of predators. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Okay, so we've established they're big. Uh, We should also come back to the fact that, yes, they are 
more or less gray in color. Mm-hmm. Uh, often look like a, just a big old slab of granite, kind of like an obelisk in the water. Yes. <laughs> now, uh, what the, one initial question that came up for me, of course, uh, especially as we were dealing in our notes here, was, is it gray, G-R-E-Y, or is it G-R-A-Y? Um, I, I and, generally uh, assume those spellings are interchangeable. It's like American English or British English. That, that's how I, yeah, how I always yeah. read it. Yeah, and, and that's one of the main distinctions. Um, Mark Cardewine, uh, in, in his book, um, stresses that that either is correct. Uh, you know, obviously, G-R-E-Y is more common in British English and G-R-A-Y is more common in American English. And generally, we're referring to what is perceived to be the color of the creature, though much of its gray appearance is due to those, those accumulated barnacles, skin lesions, scarring. Their actual skin, though, is still often described as light to dark gray or maybe a gray brown. Mm-hmm. However, it's also acceptable to consider that we dub them gray whales in reference to British zoologist John Edward Gray, G-R-A-Y, who lived 1800 through 1875, who placed the whale in its own genus in 1864. Hmm. On top of that, its scientific name is Eschrichtius robustus, referring to 19th century Danish zoologist Frederick Eschricht, uh, who lived 1798 through 1863. So it could have been the Eschricht whale. We're we're glad that it's the gray whale. Yeah, yeah, rolls off the tongue uh, for us at any rate. A little, little easier. Um, it's been known by other names, of course: the grayback, the muscle digger, the mud digger, the scrag whale, ripsack, hardhead, and of course, by American whalers, the devilfish. That was the one referenced in that that quote from the article in the American Naturalist from the nineteenth century. Correct. Yes. Now there are no recognized forms or subspecies though there are two possible subpopulations, according to Carwadine. So we have the the, the eastern North Pacific and the western North Pacific uh, gray whale. Uh, But but there also seems to be some crossbreeding between these two populations in the Mexican lagoons. Hmm. Now, again, you can put all of your sort of cartoon whale um, appearances uh, to, to the side because the, uh, the reality is somewhat different, not only with the blowholes, but um, for starters, we should point out that this is a baleen whale, not a toothed whale. Baleen whales were once toothed whales earlier on in their evolution, and we do have fossil evidence of whales with both teeth and baleen, but they have adapted, uh, the gray whales have adapted to thrive as pure filter feeders. So the baleen is a bristly material that lives inside the whale's mouth, which they use to filter feed by, uh, well, there are various different ways that different species do it, but by by forcing water through these uh, sort of sieves, natural biological sieves, the, the baleen hairs, which capture the, the plankton or the, the krill or the small bits of organic matter that the whales live on. Yeah, yeah. And it's like uh, these, these keratin baleen plates. And this is something I hadn't given a lot of thought to before, but there are different strategies to use with your baleen. There there are two main strategies, uh, two of the main strategies anyway, are gulping and straining, both carried out near the water surface by uh, different species of whales. Um, Baleen whales like right whales will swim swim through clouds of krill, open mouth, skimming them from the water. Meanwhile, fin whales gulp up water full of fish and or krill, and then push the water out as if through a sieve. Hmm. But the gray whales are different. They're the only modern baleen whale that dives down deep. And, I mean, this is deep relative to the waters they inhabit. These are not deep water whales. They're not like sperm whales. They tend to stick to coastal regions in the continental shelf. Mm -hmm. But they'll go down deep 
uh, for these regions, and they'll feed as bottom feeders. They'll turn on one sides, and interestingly, they are there is a, like a, a right handedness to the gray whales. Most whales seem to favor their right side, but some do left instead, and they'll vacuum the water up. Uh, vacuum up water, mud, sand, and most importantly, various organisms there in the muck. And then they'll use their tongue to push out the mud, sand, and water. But retain all these little organisms and things they can digest in their uh, in their bullion. Yeah. And the, it's, it's interesting. Apparently, you can tell which side a particular gray whale favors because the side it favors is generally more scraped up and debarnacled. Uh, because that's the side that goes down and plows into the <laughs> into the ocean floor, mm-hmm. and uh, also their their baleen plates are shorter uh, than in other extant whales. So uh, these other uh, baleen whales that use different feeding techniques, they I think they tend to have um, have longer baleen for straining out the things that they need to eat. Now, as for what they're eating uh, out of the muck, uh, Carwooding points out that a good 80 species of fish and invertebrates have been identified as gray whale prey. However, most of the prey that uh, they consume consists of benthic and planktonic organisms. Planktonic meaning, of course, plankton, and benthic organisms being various isopods that live abundantly in the sand. Apparently, benthic amphipods make up a good 90% of their diet. But they're, they're reasonably opportunistic and may also be shifting their foraging habits in Arctic waters um, due to climate change. So basically, mm-hmm. uh, my understanding based on the, the reading here is like they're, they're going down uh, to the, the mud and the muck and the sand to get most of their food. But if they happen to encounter some sort of plankton uh, on the way up, uh, you know, they're going to breathe it in. They're going to they're gonna go ahead and take that in as well. Mm-hmm. They're typically diving down 30 to 60 meters, but they may go up to 120 or even 170. And uh, again, opportunistic feeding may happen at any depth, but the seabed is their main target. Now, the summer is their prime feeding period. And of course, they're large whales. They're eating large meals. They'll eat anywhere from like 1 to 1.3 tons of the stuff per day. And the remainder of the year entails a lot of fasting, uh, including their migrations to and from these calving and um, and mating lagoons. Okay, so they typically are going to be uh, stocking up on food. They're eating. They're they're uh, banging their heads into the sediment up in the Arctic waters, and then they migrate down south for uh, for calving and rearing young. Yeah, yeah, and um, yes, yeah, so, so you might think of them as just this kind of enormous freight train of a creature that um, sucks up mud and anything in the mud and the sand uh, from, uh, you know, from the waters that they inhabit and just eat all summer long yeah, and then go, go south for the winter. Kind of the catfish of whales. Yeah, they are. I, I, I thought about this as well. Yeah, they're kind of, because you know, catfish were the bottom feeders I, I grew up uh, around and grew up here and about. And so, yeah, they're, they're kind of using the catfish strategy, but on an epic scale. But don't try to go noodling for gray whales. <laughs> no, no, that doesn't sound like a good idea. Now, one small note, I think I, I did read that there are some exceptions, there seems to be some evidence that there are some whales that stay north for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in general, we see this migration occurring. Other important physical notes, uh, just to describe them, they have slender and small heads even in relation to their body size, certainly when you compare them to famously big-headed whales like the sperm whale, a toothed whale. They have a stocky body with a hump two-thirds of the way down their back, along with 8 to 14, quote-unquote, knuckles further down. Uh, 
Uh, they don't have a dorsal fin. They just have a small hump. And like I mentioned earlier, they have they have whiskers. And apparently they have more whiskers than any other whale. Uh, I was not prepared for this, uh, but the, the whiskers are very prominent. And uh, I was reading about this on uh, the NOAA website. And they point out that these are more or less like the whiskers you'd encounter on any mammal. Uh, they are tactile sensors. Hmm. Now, Carbodine notes that in the older whales, though, many of these whiskers are, quote-unquote, obliterated by scarring and barnacles, however. Oh, if the barnacles are, in some cases, obliterating their uh, sensory organs, I feel like that uh, that offers some input on a question we're going to address uh, in a minute, which is uh, about these barnacles. Now, we mentioned them earlier, but uh, they're, they're a very clear feature that people notice when they look at gray whales. It looks horrible. Some people think, you know, mm-hmm. they look at this and they're like, oh, my God, these poor whales. Uh, it, this must be a purely parasitic infestation where where the whale is dying because of all these barnacles on it. I think it's it's uh, it's more of an open question exactly what the symbiotic relationship between the whales and their barnacles is. Is is it parasitism? Is it mutualism? Is it uh, commensalism? Commensalism where the barnacle would get a benefit, but it just doesn't really matter to the whale. We're going to address that in a minute. Yeah, it's. I know some of you might be thinking, you're like, I just want to hear about the gray whales. I don't want to hear about the barnacles. I don't want to hear about the orca. <laughs> but but it, this, here's the thing. You can't talk about the gray whale without talking about the orca, which we'll probably get into more in the second episode. And you can't talk about it without talking about their barnacles because they're just so so much a part of, of who they are and, and what they look like. Now, there again, there may be, like you said, there may be a little more nuance to exactly what the relationship might be between uh, the barnacles and the, the whale lice uh, and the whales. But for the most part, they're often referred to as exoparasites. So we're going to probably keep using that term even if we're you know, you know, put a, an asterisk by it and come back to it. Um, they they do have quite an exoparasite load. Newborns uh, are born without any barnacles, without any lice. Uh, they're an almost uniform dark gray, almost black color. So aside from being smaller, you can definitely identify them in the water based on their coloration. But they swiftly obtain uh, these parasites as well. In addition to, of course, scarring from not only the parasites, but also from uh, threats and feeding, uh, it gives them a very highly variable uh, appearance. Uh, and the, by feeding, I mean uh, their own feeding, going down and scraping themselves against the, the, the bottom of the seafloor. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. 
New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Before we get into the the barnacle, though, I want to talk just a little bit about the whale lice, because this is all part of the exoparasite load, which, uh, according to, to Carwadine, adult gray whales carry more exoparasites than any other whale species, on average more than 180 kilograms or 396 pounds of the stuff. So they got a lot living on them. Yeah, and I, I didn't do a breakdown of, like, how how that would what that would that sort of parasite load would be like for the human body, but I think a lot of our repulsion uh, to barnacles and, and these uh, these these rather large uh, whale lice is that yeah you know, we we think about ourselves we think about our pets and if those were on us obviously we would want them removed pronto. Hold on, Rob. I just tried to do the math on the uh, okay. on the the loading of the barnacles and and whale lice and stuff by weight. So if we're saying that adult gray whales can grow up to about forty tons, which is eighty thousand pounds, and then you compare that to you said uh, they could have up to what like almost four hundred pounds of uh, of loading of barnacles and stuff. Mm-hmm. That is about half a percent of the body weight. So if you translate that to a human, I don't know, a human, somebody weighs 150 pounds, what's uh, half of 1% of that body weight on on the outside of them? Oh, I don't know. Is having like, uh, you know, three quarters of a pound of parasites on the outside (laughs) of you that bad? I don't know. How many barnacles would that be? I don't know. Hmm. Let's say it's one barnacle. Would you put up with one? <laughs> oh, that's barnacle? way more than one barnacle. That's that's a number of barnacles. Well, I'm being generous here. I'm being okay. let's let's go ahead and pare it down to just one, maybe two barnacles. I feel like that would still feel like one or two barnacles too many for yeah. us. But then again, we don't live in the ocean. We don't have barnacles, so it's not appropriate for us to really make judgment calls like this. Okay. Well, apologies for the rough math. I may have screwed something up there, but but I tried. No, I think you captured the general feel of it. Because, again, we have to think about just how big these creatures are. And uh, as we'll probably get into, the barnacles are not covering them head to toe. It's not like a a suit of barnacles. They tend to be clusters in certain places, like top of the head, right behind the head, and some in other places. Yeah, yeah. They got patches, little colonies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They have to keep a low profile to keep from being pulled off 
by the water. Uh, though again, they'll they'll often scrape against things. And and uh, I'm, I'm off the top of my head, I'm not sure if they're necessarily scratching to remove themselves, remove the barnacles from their body, or if they're dealing with like general skin discomfort, or it has to do with the lice, etc. But they end up scraping off the barnacles anyway. The one whale that we saw scraping against the bottom of the boat, there would be this colossal scraping sound, and then like a cloud of pieces of barnacle and like, I guess, maybe some dried skin and probably some loose uh, whale lice would come floating up <laughs> through the water. That That is gross. But to remind you again, you said earlier, uh, I, I think you, you said that the lice on these whale are not actually lice in the, the sense that we usually mean, like the parasitic insects that can be found on uh, on land mammals. Right. Yeah. We call them lice because whalers saw them on the, the bodies of the whales they were slaughtering. And they were they just made the, you know, I guess a natural comparison to be made to lice that occur on human bodies. And they're like, oh, well, those are whale lice. But they're they're not lice. They're actually a type of crustacean that's related uh, more to the skeleton shrimp, uh, hmm. an organism we've talked about on the show before. So what are, what are the, what the so-called lice doing on these whales? Okay. So... Um, if you, if you pick up Carbodine's book, and I, again, I recommend it for whale fans out there, he has illustrations of all four species of whale lice that you'll find on the gray whale. Three of them are, are only found on gray whales, and then there's another variety that is found on gray whales and bowhead whales. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, they're these, uh, they get kind of big. They can be anywhere between three and 30 millimeters long, so at the, the largest, a little over an inch. Uh, a lot of the photographs you see of the barnacles on the bodies of gray whales, you can also see the lice clustered around them. They have this kind of kind of like um, these kind of ridges on their bodies, mm -hmm. uh, though they may not be you know, moving during the, the footage. Um, they may live in populations of up to 7,500 on a single whale, and they generally live and die on the same whale, though there is some degree of transference that takes place when the whales are in close uh, confines with each other. But they have no free-swimming stage in their development, no, no stage in their development at which they're fr swimming free and they're running across other whales. If they're going to jump ship, they've got to, like, jump ship. Straight to another whale. Yeah. But all this, like, the, the, the branding of, of whale lice, it just made me sort of automatically assume, well, they're drinking whale blood. Clearly, that's what they're doing. But that's not what they're doing. Uh, Carwoody notes that they, they don't drink blood. They eat um, whale skin that's come off, um, uh, just, you know, like, uh, like old, uh, essentially like eating dry skin, except in the water. Uh, mm -hmm. They're possibly eating a little bit of bacteria and algae as well, and they'll also eat damaged tissue. So Carwoody writes, quote, Though usually considered parasites, they might be more accurately described as cleaning symbionts. Also, maybe providing a benefit to the whale. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's, it's still worth noting that if there is an excessively large population, that might be an indicator of poor health for an individual whale. But, you know, that's, you know, obviously, if, a, if an organism is in poor health, a lot of things are going to be out of whack, including uh, the amount of creatures living on its hide. Yes, and that's true for organisms living on and in all kinds of other larger organisms. It's true for us. Like our, our gut uh, uh, microbiome is useful to us. All of those bacteria in our guts are helpful. But if there, something goes wrong with our immune system, they can turn opportunistic. Absolutely. Now, coming back to the barnacles, uh, Carwoodine notes that, quote, the barnacles are thought to be host-specific to gray whales. 
though there are isolated examples on captive bottlenose dolphins and beluga whales and one wild killer whale. And their life cycle is synchronous with that of their hosts. And he, he notes elsewhere that there are four species of whale acorn barnacles in general, um, in three genera, but we're talking about one particular species of, of, um, of acorn barnacle that uh, is found on the skin of the gray whale, and that is uh, Cryptolepis rachianecti. Sorry, um, barnacles, if I, if I butchered your scientific name a little bit there. Joe, you were um, kind enough to include a lot of close-up images of, 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 our, of uh, acorn barnacles uh, in our notes here. Uh, would you describe these for the listeners? Well, different barnacles have different uh, outer appearances, and uh, I guess this is because barnacles, much like coral, um, they, they are small marine invertebrates, but they are perhaps most uh, visually notable for the external mineral structures that they build. And those structures can sometimes be confused with the flesh of the animals themselves, but barnacles are actually crustaceans, so they are closely related to animals like shrimp and crabs. And uh, when, when you've seen barnacles in the past, probably the main thing you've noticed are these external plates, which are made of calcium carbonate. They're made of the same material as eggshells or oyster shells or coral skeletons and so forth. And in barnacles, these calcium carbonate plates can have uh, different appearances. Some look kind of like flower buds made out of stone or some look like cement pumpkins. Some look like tiny volcano calderas. If you zoom way out, some of the colonies look, as I mentioned earlier, kind of like, uh, you know, groupings of lichen on a piece of granite. But if you zoom in and you, you see the shapes and you see the kind of holes at the top of each barnacle, uh, they also kind of resemble the, the photos that people freak out about online. And I, I'm never sure how much of this freak out is kind of uh, performative, ironic thing, but about like tryptophobia images, you know, the mm -hmm. lotus pod thing. Uh, I, I don't share this reaction, but while reading about barnacles, I came to glean that some people are deeply, viscerally repulsed by the appearance of them. Uh, and I didn't even know if I was going to mention this, but I was seeing a couple of cases where there'd be like an article on the internet about barnacles or that featured pictures of barnacles. Then you scroll down and you look at the comments and some people are reacting not just with disgust. I mean, there is plenty of that, but with like moral outrage at the author for posting these pictures. Like you did something bad <laughs> by showing me barnacles. I don't quite get that, but um, I, I think it may overlap with the tryptophobia thing, which as I said a minute ago, I, I still am not sure how much of that is kind of like the the creepy clown thing, like a like a fear that people are playing up on purpose to be funny or or how much like their moral outrage is just like a genuine uh, uh, emotional overload reaction. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure either, but I will say that, you know, with the particularly with the acorn barnacles here. Uh, they look a lot to me like the the eye of Sauron. They have that kind of appearance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's something a little uh, unnerving about them. Also, I think it's one thing to see barnacles like this on, say, the, the hull of a ship, uh, mm -hmm. or you know, barnacles of another variety. But when they're on a living organism, um, I think maybe there's sometimes sort of category confusion going on. Yes. And particularly with these sort of round aperture appearing barnacles. 
we, I think our minds instantly go to poor anomaly, an- anomalies. We think of like clogged pores. We think of pimples. We think mm. of various openings that may occur in um, diseased flesh. And that's maybe where our mind goes. Like that's the nearest analogy that we have as as surface dwellers, and uh, and so we we think about all that when we see barnacles on, say, a whale. Yeah, I can understand that, and I I certainly share that I, I react differently when I see them on an animal versus on just you know growing on the you know the the piling that a pier is resting on or something. Yeah, like you know, seeing the the whales in the wild and seeing them close up, like they're close enough where you could you could touch the barnacles if you wanted to. I did not, um, and I only only touched the the whale once. I'm like, that's good enough. I only need to make physical contact with the gray whale once, and I'm good. But um, you know, there is this kind of like feeling that that um, that you end up having where it's like, should I help? Should I scrape? <laughs> you know, not that you would, but, you know, you, you, you want to sort of help the creature. Again, you think of it almost like a dog, uh, whereas it, you know, if your dog came up and your dog had some sort of, um, uh, or they're, or they're always, fur, yeah, yeah, seed pods or something stuck in its fur, like you'd want to help it out. If your cat has a has something stuck in its fur, you're going to reach in there and, uh, and, and pull it out and, and get bitten as, as a thank you. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the whales are not asking for this treatment. Well, and as I'll get to in a minute, it, I think there's more ambiguity than we might realize about exactly what the, the, the pluses and minuses of this relationship are. Mm. Uh, but a little, more, uh, a little more about barnacles themselves. So the life cycle of a barnacle goes like this. It begins as a microscopic larva that looks kind of like a cross between a flea and a shrimp. And in this larval stage, after being released by the parent, the barnacle swims around freely in the water column. So it begins life as a free-swimming organism. It's just one of the, the trillions of zooplankton bobbing around out there in the ocean. And as a larva, the barnacle's primary mission is to find a home. It's looking for real estate it can stake out where it will spend the rest of its life. It does this by exploring various surfaces and testing the properties of these surfaces. A lot of species are attracted to chemicals secreted by adult barnacles that let them know they have encountered a good place to swarm and congregate. And when the larva finds a surface it approves of, it proceeds to glue its head down permanently. So the barnacle secretes a form of quick-drying adhesive from its antennae, and uh, it cements itself. And this is, again, head down to the place where it will spend the rest of its life. Apparently, barnacle cement is one of the strongest, if not the single strongest, uh, adhesive substance known in nature, so much that uh, scientists have studied it in hopes of developing better synthetic glues for use in medicine and microelectronics, uh, especially in conditions where you need to glue things together that are already wet. That's kind of interesting mm. property as like so you're already under the water. Both surfaces are wet. So how exactly do you do you glue this uh, together effectively? Interesting. Once a barnacle is fixed to whatever surface it has chosen, uh, it begins building its calcium carbonate outer plates, uh, and it begins eating and growing. And the barnacle's uh, shell on the outside typically consists of plates that surround the animal on all sides to form a kind of cone, and then usually a few more plates on top that form a sort of door that the barnacle can close when it's threatened or close to conserve moisture. Say if it's in an intertidal area when the tide goes out, the barnacle's exposed to the air, it can close up its door to keep some liquid inside. Uh, and uh, then, of course, it can open them again when it is time to feed. 
Barnacles are filter feeders, much like baleen whales. But while whales feed by uh, by pushing water through their baleen, barnacles feed by waving their feet around in the water. <laughs> uh, barnacles have these little legs called cirri, which are uh, segmented like the appendages of other crustaceans, but covered in long little filaments. So they look like a cross between curly shrimp legs and peacock feathers. Rob, I've attached some pictures for you to look at while I'm describing here. So they often get, they'll kind of like fan these out and they do really kind of look like a fan. Uh, a bunch of these legs arranged in parallel with these little uh, feathery kind of hairs coming off of them. And they essentially function like fishing nets. The barnacles wave these cirri uh, through the water, collecting plankton and organic detritus, and then drawing them into the shell to bring the food to their mouths. Yeah, this image is very delightful. And I guess it's 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 harder to hate on barnacles as much if you think of them as like tiny old people who sit down forever on, uh, you know, say the deck of a, of a cruise ship, glue their butts down and then begin to wave their fancily dressed legs in the air. Well, yeah, that's right. It wouldn't be gluing their butts. It would be gluing their foreheads down. So <laughs> you, you would have to imagine the human analogy is if you lived by gluing your forehead to a rock and then surrounding yourself with external bone plates, like you grow some bones on the outside, uh, they're bones that live outside, you surround yourself with that, then you wave your feet around in the air until you catch I don't know, something dead with your toes and your leg hairs, and then you bring that down to your mouth. Okay. Well, that sounds a little more monstrous again. We're, we're, we're skewing monstrous again, but it's still delightful. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals.
Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Another really amazing thing about barnacles is their sexual reproduction. Uh, Barnacles typically uh, in the same individual have both male and female sex organs, but they can't reproduce asexually. They don't bud like some other sessile organisms. They have to find a partner to mate with, but they're barnacles. They are stuck to one place. Remember, glued the forehead down, so they can't go wandering around to locate a mate. Other sessile organisms deal with the fact that they are immobile uh, by simply kind of spamming the water with sperm and eggs and hoping mm-hmm. to, uh, to you know, hoping that those sex cells meet up with opposite sex cells somewhere out there. This is known as broadcast spawning. I've read it alleged in many sources that barnacles never do this. Uh, they don't do exactly that with both sex cells, but I, I it does seem some barnacles engage in sperm casting, where at least the sperm, but not the eggs, are released into open water just in hopes that it will drift to an individual with an egg cell. Uh, this is according to uh, one paper I found by uh, Marian Barazande et al. called Something Darwin Didn't Know About Barnacles, uh, sperm, sperm Cast Mating in a Common Stalked Species published in Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences in 2013. Uh, This experiment found that Pacific intertidal gooseneck barnacles do sometimes fertilize eggs by sperm casting. But this result was surprising, and the very reason it was surprising was that for the most part, barnacles have a different strategy. They actually physically copulate, or as the scientists call it, pseudo-copulate, in order to exchange sperm, which means they have to find a mate by reaching. Uh, which uh, So uh, for this reason, it has been suggested that uh, barnacles probably have the longest penis-to-body size ratio of any animal on Earth, with penises measuring more than the rest of the total length of the body many times over. Uh, I've read different estimates for this, exactly how much longer it is seems unclear, but a commonly cited figure is eight times body length. And these are used kind of how you might imagine. They sense around, they feel around at their neighbors to find a neighbor to pseudo-copulate with. And barnacles can act either as males or females for the purposes of mating. So they all possess these penises, uh, and they are fascinating and remarkably adaptable organs depending on environmental conditions. So like uh, one uh, factor is the uh, the the choppiness of the water around them, so they will grow longer in calmer waters, but shorter and thicker in choppy, turbulent waters, because as you can imagine, long, thin appendages are more difficult to control when the water is uh, moving around a lot. Uh, but these uh, the properties of this organ also depend on the density of barnacle population. So when neighbors are nearby, they don't need to reach as far, so they will be shorter and less elastic. But when neighbors are sparse, when the population is less dense, they grow very long and elastic. Yeah, I remember a um, friend of the show, Mara Hart, in her book, uh, Sex in the Sea, there's oh a whole section talking about barnacles and their reproductive strategies. Yeah, I remember Mara having a lot. <laughs> Barnacle penises officially amazing. Uh, but anyway, so as filter feeders, 
Barnacles usually attach themselves to stationary objects in places with a lot of activity, whether that's a rock or part of a human-built structure or something else. They will attach themselves to a place where there's a lot of exchange of water back and forth because, again, they can't go out hunting. They need water containing their food to wash over them. So it's no good for a barnacle to sit around in calm, still waters. They, they want flow and exchange. Location, location, location. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you want foot traffic. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes, this means posting up in the intertidal zone where the tides are going to charge in and then drain out throughout the day. But if you're a really lucky barnacle, you could manage to attach yourself to a rock that moves, a rock that travels along its own course, causing water full of plankton and other goodies to wash over you constantly. And for this reason, you will see barnacles do well by attaching themselves to the hulls of ships. This is a common problem in shipping. But for millions of years before there were ships, there were whales, giant boulders that swim. And of course, before whales, there were um, sea turtles. And uh, I believe I was reading that that whale barnacles derived from sea turtle barnacles. That's right. It is thought that whale barnacles evolved from what are called turtle barnacles, which don't just uh, occupy turtles. They, they're found on the, sh- the shells of sea turtles, but also other things like the carapace of crabs and, mm. uh, and on some uh, sirenians like, uh, like manatees and so forth. But you can, you can imagine the, uh, why this diversification takes place when whales become a possibility. Oh, yeah. These, these vast expanses of hide to colonize. So many whales, especially filter-feeding whales, are known to accumulate barnacles. But gray whales really excel as barnacle hosts. In uh, tons of pictures of these animals, again, they they just, uh, you know, you will see them covered in patches of these things. Mm. Uh, There is one species of acorn barnacle. You mentioned them earlier called uh, Cryptolepus uh, rachianecti. These have been uh, allegedly living off of gray whales in particular for millions of years. But looking at uh, whale barnacles in general, uh, I wanted to return to this question of what is the exact symbiotic relationship between whales and their barnacles? Are the barnacles actual parasites causing net harm to their hosts? Or is the relationship an example of what biologists would call commensalism, where uh, the host is not really impacted one way or the other, but the barnacle gets a benefit? Or is it possible there are mutualistic benefits? Do do both the whale and the barnacle get something good out of the relationship? It seems like for a long time, experts thought that whales and their barnacles uh, were generally an example of a commensal relationship. So the barnacles get a benefit, uh, get the benefit of a moving substrate to bring them a steady flow of plankton, as well as getting general protection from predators. And you can see this reduced risk of predation uh, when attached to a whale body in the fact that whale barnacles in particular have evolved to possess a less defensively oriented outer plate structure. Uh, they usually have, Rob, if you compare pictures of different kind of barnacles, it seems like whale barnacles often just have more kind of fleshy bits poking out of their shells at all times. They don't close their plate doors completely or as completely. Uh, so they just seem like they, they have to be less focused on defense than some other barnacles are. This probably also contributes to the uh, disturbing quality of, uh, to some, uh, to seeing barnacles on whales. Because yeah. Yeah, it's more obviously uh, some sort of creature living on the, uh, the whale's hide. And you can't just dismiss it as being some sort of uh, uh, you know, stone-like de- detritus that's built up there. 
Right. So what's undeniable is that the barnacles get a benefit from the relationship. But is it true that the relationship is basically nothing to the whale, neither helpful nor harmful? Well, this seems very debatable. For one thing, having barnacles on the skin would quite clearly reduce the hydrodynamic efficiency of the whale's movement. Uh, As a point of analogy, this is not a perfect analogy, but uh, I was reading from the National Marine Sanctuary Foundation about the effect of barnacles on ships built by humans, and they write, quote, the U.S. Navy estimates that heavy barnacle growth on ships can add weight and increase drag by nearly 60 percent, which can lead to as much as a 40 percent increase in fuel consumption. Now, obviously, those figures don't map exactly onto an organism like a whale, but the principle holds true. It seems clear that barnacles would make a whale a less efficient swimmer, uh, even if only by a marginal percent. Also, the fact that whales have been observed to engage in behavior that looks like an attempt to remove barnacles would probably also mean that they are at least somewhat perceived as a nuisance by the whale, at least assuming those interpretations of that behavior is correct. Now, Rob, I I can't remember if you mentioned it earlier, but you had said something to me about um, uh, observations of whales uh, uh, appearing to want to scrape barnacles off their body, maybe by rubbing up against things. And mm-hmm. uh, and m- maybe we don't understand exactly what the purpose of that behavior is, but it's been interpreted as an attempt to remove barnacles. Yeah, yeah, that's my understanding. And they'll do this not only on the bottoms of boats and ships, but they'll do this on you know rocks and in the sand and also just through the act of feeding, because again, these are bottom feeder- feeders who scrape half of their their body against the bottom of the of the sea mm-hmm. um but yeah i guess the thing we have to keep in mind is that like it's not just the barnacles on the body they're also the sea lice uh they're scarring uh there's you know there's reason to believe that i guess a whale could itch for other reasons or have some sort of skin irritation for other reasons and it might be pleasurable for other reasons for it to scrape its body uh against something even if that scraping does uh, in effect, remove barnacles from its its skin. Yes. So there there are several ways where you might be able to uh, interpret barnacles as parasites, as causing net harm to the whales. However, I came across another idea that I thought was very interesting. Again, this is not certain. It, it's debatable. But some researchers have speculated there could be cases where whale barnacles are actually providing a benefit to the whale. Now, what could that be? It's hard to imagine by looking at it. But what has been proposed is that barnacles may serve as a form of uh, armor or as a weapon in some cases. Now, what would be the evidence for this idea? Well, I was looking at a paper by John K.B. Ford and Randall R. Reeves, published in the Mammal Review in 2008, called Fight or Flight, Anti-Predator Strategies of Baleen Whales. Now, something uh, we've already alluded to and we're going to talk about more extensively in the next episode is orca predation on gray whales in particular. Uh, But orcas, also known as killer whales, are major predators to a number of mysticeti or uh, baleen whale species. And the authors of this paper argue that understanding the role of orcas as predators has been hampered by poor understanding of the different predator-prey dynamics, quote, including the relative vulnerability of different mysticete species and age classes to killer whales and how those prey animals avoid predation. 
So what are the different patterns of behavior that different prey species of whales resort to when an orca starts threatening them or when a pod of orcas uh, threatens them? The authors argue there are two main classes of behavioral response, and those are fight or flight. The flight strategy is fairly simple. Uh, when you spot killer whales, you get out of there. The authors describe the strategy as rapid, monodirectional swimming away from the orcas at a pace of between 20 and 40 kilometers an hour, a, a speed that the orcas uh, cannot generally keep up with or will not keep up with usually. And this behavior has been observed in six species of the genus uh, Balaenoptera, which contains animals like the mink, fin, and blue whales. On the other hand, uh, many different species exhibit what the authors call the fight strategy, which, quote, consists of active physical defense, including self-defense by single individuals, defense of calves by their mothers, and coordinated defense by groups of whales. It's documented for five mysticetes, and they list the southern right whale, the north Atlantic right whale, the bowhead whale, the humpback whale, and the gray whale. The authors argue that these strategies are not incidental. They are selected by uh, evolution for each species to maximize survival odds based on the whale's other physical characteristics. Species that engage in the flight strategy have streamlined bodies that are capable of fast, sustained, endurance swimming. Uh, they uh, they also, quote, tend to favor pelagic habitats, uh, which that means open sea, deep water, mm. and calving grounds where prolonged escape sprints from killer whales are possible. Meanwhile, they say that uh, whales that engage in uh, fight strategies tend to have more robust body shapes, and they tend to be slower swimmers, but they're also usually maneuverable swimmers. So they can, uh, they might not be able to do mono direction, you know, swimming in one direction really fast for a long time, but they can kind of move around quickly within a small space if they need to, say, reposition their bodies or deliver a blow. These uh, species also, quote, often calve or migrate in coastal areas where proximity to shallow water provides refuge and an advantage in defense. Most fight species have either callosities, which are uh, rough and hardened patches of skin, or incrustations of barnacles on their bodies, which may serve either primarily or secondarily as weapons or armor for defense. So I think think that's a really interesting inference here. Specifically, whales that are more likely to fight predators rather than run from them also happen to be the ones that are more likely to have either callosities, these raised calloused patches of skin, or colonies of barnacles on their skin, uh, which, of course, you know, a colony of barnacles, you do not want to bite into that or get slapped with it. And the authors write that humpback whales are believed to make use of these barnacle-encrusted patches as weapons during fights between males at breeding grounds. Uh, they say, you know, there are many different kind of moves that humpback whales will do against each other when they're displaying aggressive behaviors uh, to other males. They will do headbutting and ramming of each other, uh, striking blows, and they will hit each other with long flippers and tail flukes. And the authors point out that these parts of the body where they will hit each other are also parts of the body, areas where there are large incrustations of barnacles usually found. Uh, they say, quote, a blow from a barnacle encrusted surface would likely have enhanced effectiveness in aggressive physical interactions. Uh, and from this, they go on to argue that these same types of attacks are 
probably used by humpback whales against predatory orcas, and the barnacles probably provide an advantage in the same way. Now, the same is maybe not exactly true of gray whales, because they say gray whales don't fight quite as much. They don't uh, show examples of intraspecific aggression associated with male competition like Mm -hmm. the uh, humpback whales do. So the males are less often fighting each other uh, like humpback whales. But uh, they say that barnacles on the skin of gray whales could still help protect the whales as basically a type of defensive armor. So if an orca tries to ram the body of a gray whale and it's got an incrustation of barnacles on it, uh, or they try to bite the gray whale and they bite them on an incrustation of barnacles, that seems much more likely to harm the attacking animal. This is fascinating. So on, on, on one level, um, yes, the, the, the mating of the gray whales, we'll, we'll probably get into that more in the next episode. But yeah, the, the, there, there's, there definitely is more of a um, uh, sort of a free love kind of a vibe going on among the gray whales. Uh, so the, the males are not necessarily uh, competing with each other, it seems. Um, and as, uh, as now, but on the same level, I mean, the, 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 the whales are going to come into contact with each other and the barnacles do scar other whales sort of at least incidentally. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was pointed out uh, to us in Mexico by one of the, the local guides on the boats. Um, of course, they're covered in scars from various things, everything from orca attacks uh, to barnacles scraping them uh, via contact with other whales. And uh yeah, this is, this is an interesting idea, though, because on one level, a a really good blow from um, uh, from a fluke or a flipper from a gray whale, I've read, is enough to certainly to kill a, a man, uh, but also could potentially kill a an orca in one blow as well. But I guess you're not necessarily going to get that killer blow every time. Sometimes you're just going to maybe make um, a lighter contact or a near miss. And you can imagine those scenarios would be enhanced by some sort of barnacle encrusting. Possibly. Now, to come back on that, you could imagine other reasonings as well that there might be uh, this correlation where species that are more likely to stand and fight when attacked by orcas rather than run away are also the ones more likely to be encrusted with barnacles. Uh, Maybe there is a common cause, like barnacles don't actually make useful armor or make useful weapons, but the slow swimming that makes a gray whale have to rely on fighting rather than rapid escape also makes it more susceptible to barnacle infestation. That that kind of thing could be possible. Um, But I think it's an interesting correlation, and it makes you wonder how you would uh, test that further. Like, could you compare different individual whales of the same species and look at maybe how much barnacle loading they have and then observe their relative success at, say, protecting calves from orcapods? Uh, do mothers with more barnacles win more fights against orcas and so forth? It, I mean, it's also worth noting in all of this that the, the young gray whales, again, have no barnacles. They're born without barnacles. They will accumulate barnacles, but it takes a little time for the, the, the hard barnacles to actually build up. Uh, so especially during that, that period uh, uh, when they're leaving those, uh, those sheltered lagoons, uh, this is when they're at their most vulnerable for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. However, it's all, another thing the authors point out that I think is worth remembering is that whales, including gray whales, are not orcas only prey. And they are an especially dangerous and costly type of prey for the orcas to pursue. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the authors write, quote, the rarity of observed successful attacks by killer whales on baleen whales, especially adults, may be an indication of the effectiveness of these anti-predator strategies. Baleen whales likely offer low profitability to killer whales relative to some other marine mammal prey. High-speed pursuit of flight species has a high energetic cost and a low probability of success, while attacks on fight species can involve prolonged handling times and a risk of serious injury. So the baleen whales here are, are not, not helpless against these orcas. Like, they, they, they put up a real fight, and if the orcas are going to eat a whale calf, like the, they will make them work for it. So, of course, yeah, they, they will work for it. They are hard workers, the yeah. orca. But as, as is often the case, we've discussed this with various predator-prey relationships, like it's, it's every little bit of deterrent uh, that adds up to survival. Like mm-hmm. anything that makes you a slightly more difficult meal, then you, you increase the odds that the, that the predators will realize that this is not worth it. Yeah. Um, and and uh, we'll get into this in the next episode, but I mean, that's one of the reasons the lagoons are safe harbors is that... Um, is that they have found a place to go that do not favor the orcas. And the orcas, intelligent um, pack or pod hunters that they are, uh, they will attack their most, one of their most dangerous prey when they have the, the optimal advantage, when they have everything lining up for them. Uh, they're not going to do it if they, if they don't have a key advantage. So I guess uh, more on that next time. Yeah. Wait, before we close out, what do you, what do you think about the barnacle uh, armor slash weapon hypothesis? You think that's got anything going for it or, or not? I like it. I, I certainly buy that at least partial encrusting with barnacles would perhaps provide uh, this incidental extra level of defense or offense. I just I'm not as sure how that maybe factors into um, like the, the grander like evolutionary scheme of things, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how it balances out against, I guess, uh, uh, negative impacts from, say, introducing drag and swimming and other things. Right. Yeah, or or mating behavior and so forth. Yeah. But I mean, they've they've been scrapy with barnacles for a long time, so they're <laughs> they're accustomed to it. It is it is a part of who they are, uh, uh, which I think is one of the the, the big take homes for again for thinking about gray whales and their barnacles and their lice and their most notable predator like these these are, are are creatures that are not only a part of their lives but they've shaped the life of the gray whale they've shaped what the gray whale is and mm-hmm. you can't remove them from the scenario all right well on that note we're going to go ahead and call it for this episode we'll be we'll be back in the next core episode of stuff to blow your mind to discuss gray whales in greater detail, we'll talk about their, uh, their more about their relationship with the orcas. We'll talk about um, you know, some of the variety of orcas as well. We'll kind of go on an orcas tangent. And then we'll get into more details about their migration and their reproduction. In the meantime, uh, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Uh, do you have experiences with gray whales that you would like to share with us? Right in. We'd love to hear them. Heck, if you have any experience with whales, if you've uh, any any whale watchers out there and you want to tell us about other species of whales that you're uh, super into, uh, let us know. I'm I'm 
I'm all revved up on, on whales and dolphins and porpoises right now. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to see your photos and hear your stories. A reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.